ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs. A new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week is a brand new ETF issuer who just entered the fold about three weeks ago, and they did so by launching in a segment of ETFs I haven't really covered that much on this podcast, and that's volatility ETFs. The issuer is Convexity Shares, who back in mid-August, they launched two ETFs designed to provide long volatility exposure. Uh, the Convexity One-Time Spikes Futures ETF, ticker SPKX, and the Convexity Shares Daily 1.5 Times Spikes Futures ETF, ticker SPKY. Now, obviously, these ETFs cover a more complex area of the market when you start talking about uh, volatility exposure, and there are clearly some important nuances to how these products work. So I'll be joined by Tom Jark, Vice President of Proprietary Product Development at MIAX, M-I-A-X, who is behind these uh, ETFs. And we'll talk more about this, but MIAX's parent company is Miami International Holdings, who owns Miami International Securities Exchange, MIAX Pearl, MIAX Emerald, uh, Minneapolis Grain Exchange, and the Bermuda Stock Exchange. So pretty interesting stuff. But we're going to pop open the hood on these two Convexity Shares ETFs. Uh, I'll have Tom explain how these work, how these compare to other long vol products on the market, uh, how these might be used in a portfolio. We'll, we'll dive into all of this. And again, my hope is to shine a light on an area of ETFs I just haven't ventured that deeply into in the past. So uh, really looking forward to this. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Tom Hendrickson, Chief Product and Innovation Officer at Vetify. We're going to discuss a topic that I feel like has been talked about for a number of years as a real concern among some investors and advisors, but that concern hasn't gone away. And I actually think it might be getting worse. And that's the top heaviness of the S&P 500, the concentration where currently the top 10 holdings make up nearly 30% of the index, 30%. And Vetify has a new survey out specifically regarding advisor concerns around this. So Tom will give us the results of that. And then we're simply going to have a conversation around this top heaviness and what ETF investors might do if they're truly concerned about this. We'll also discuss low and uh, minimum volatility ETFs, which I feel like are back in the spotlight after taking a bit of a, a perception beating during the COVID crash in 2020. Uh, th these products are faring much better this year. So uh, we'll get into those as well. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Tom Hendrickson. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community one relationship at a time. 
we can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, welcome back to the uh, podcast. How was your long weekend? It was great, Nate. Had a great time with the family. Um, you know, kind of sending summer off uh, into the into the ether, though, felt like a sort of turn the page and getting ready for fall. How about you? Yeah, it was nice. You know, a little uh, college football, which interestingly, so I'm based in Kansas City. They just legalized sports betting uh, on the Kansas side. So that was fun. I got my uh, teeth kicked in on my bets, but had a lot of fun putting a few very small wagers down. It reminded me why I don't trade individual stocks. Uh, but uh, no, made it out to the uh, lake for an afternoon, smoked some ribs, had a, had a very nice weekend. Well, that's awesome. Well, Nate, before we dive into it, what as, as we, as we kind of turn the page and move into the fall season, what was the highlight of your summer? And, and I can share one with, uh, with you as well. Uh, you know, that's a good... This, this was an odd summer for me, to be honest, Tom, because... Usually my wife and I are pretty good at uh, finding at least a week to take the kids somewhere and unwind a little bit, have a little family time. But unfortunately, with both of our work schedules and the kids' summer camps and all their activities, we just didn't make it happen. We had way too much going on, which, you know, I'm getting my violin out here, right? Certainly a first world problem, but I am feeling it a little bit. We just did not get that downtime this summer. So honestly, it was pretty boring overall really just worked a lot now i'm hoping we can get something on the calendar here over the next three to four months but uh, i i don't know that i have a highlight which is kind of uh, kind of sad what, what about on your side yeah no nate i hear you it's funny it used to be things would slow down in the summer on on all different fronts but uh we experienced the same thing just so many different things going on but we we were actually fortunate to, enough to get over to, to to europe we went to greece for a week with the family and it was just an amazing experience. We had some some Greek hosts who uh, I'd say the highlight within that broader highlight was uh, they'd, they'd set up these dinners and the culinary experience, not only the food, but but the ambiance and just the way in which they were thoughtful about where we'd go. It, it was just uh, it was incredible. So we were really lucky to, to get that this summer. And it felt great to to travel again. Uh, you know, we we dodged any of the real, you know, travel headaches that I know a lot of other folks experienced, but uh, overall, it was just, it was, it was just really memorable, once in a lifetime kind of thing. So, wow, sounds amazing. Did you have a favorite city that you visited? You know what? We spent most of the time on the island of Rhodes. Uh, that's where our, our friends and hosts were were at, and so we were in a, a small town in Rhodes called Falaraki for most of the time. Short uh, stop over in Athens on the way back, but you know, both were incredible, uh, you know, different in their own right. But, uh, you know, it wasn't a whole whole bunch of travel within Greece. It, it was more so get over there and, and experience that specific part of, of Greek, uh, you know, the, the Greek landscape and culture. How nice. You may not know this. I actually lived over in Europe for about seven years. And uh, my wife has never been over there. She went to Spain, but has never kind of gone through you know, Germany and France and down to Italy. And so that's one of the things on our bucket list. We, we're trying to find a week or two sometime here over the next few years to get out there and do that. So uh, your, your trip just sounds amazing, Tom. Oh, that'd be excellent. But, but look, let's uh, so we're going to lock back in here on the uh, as the fall gets kicked off here. And as I mentioned at the top, Vetify recently ran an advisor survey that had to do with uh, these concerns over the concentration in the S&P 500. And what I want to do, let me give you a few quick, uh, quick numbers regarding that concentration, and then you can tell us about the, the survey. And uh, as I noted right now, the top 10 names in the S&P 500 account for 29% of the index. Uh, the top five names... So that's uh, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, and Alphabet. Those five alone make up over 22% of the index. And then I'll give you one other data point here, which is that over 27% of the index is in the tech sector. So with, with that as a backdrop, tell us what you found in the survey, and then I do want to get more into this, uh, this concentration. Yeah, looking forward to batting this around with you, Nate. So we asked uh, a community of our, a subsection of our advisor community, how concerned are you about the concentration of the top five names in the S&P 500? We gave uh, four different answers. Very concerned, concerned, just a little, not concerned. And so um, about 70% of the respondents landed in the very concerned at 16.9% or concerned at about 52%. 
just a little, uh, you know, about 22% and not concerned, a, a, a little shy of 8%. So, so the, the, the lion's share of respondents are certainly showing some concern as, as they're certainly looking at the core of their portfolio construction, often getting exposure, um, you know, likely via one of the three large S&P 500 tracking um, ETFs. And, and so I think that as, you, as you're rightly pointing out, as we kind of pull the lens up a little bit and think about how this compares to historical concentrations, we're, we're, we're not right at the top tick as of, you know, the 31st of August, but we're very, very close. And so, you know, even if we look back all the way to 1996, um, we are within the sort of top 5% of this weighting in terms of uh, the historical uh, composition of, of this really important index. And so it's it's definitely of concern to the advisor community and probably the investor community more broadly. Yeah, I thought that was a big number. I mean, nearly 70% concerned or very concerned about the concentration. And as I was thinking about this, you, you know, I, I I think there's a subset of advisors who they look back to the tech bubble and they look back to the financial crisis uh, in, in 2008. Because if, if you go back, so in 2000, I believe tech was north of 30% of the S&P 500. And the top 10 stocks comprise something like 25% of the index. And of course, we all know what would happen next with the dot-com bust. And then in 2006, financials grew to over 20% of the index, something like 22 or 23%. And, and then, of course, the uh, financial crisis hit, and, and that space was bludgeoned. So you can understand why advisors are concerned here. I think it's the old, you know, I've, I've seen this movie before. But on the other hand... I, I do think it's important to point out that if investors simply held the S&P 500, they, of course, also got the benefit of those sectors and top stocks running up to, to get to these lofty concentration levels. So I guess my point, Tom, is that I, I think the level of concern probably somewhat depends on how you view the world and your ability to time the market. But it, it's interesting. I mean, 70 percent right now, it's a big number. No, absolutely. And Nate, I think you're you're highlighting some, you know, sort of an age old paradox, the paradox of diversification. And, and so diversification does, uh, uh, you know, by definition, you're going to have outperformance in certain areas and underperformance in other areas as you try to build a portfolio that's not, you know, hugely correlated to one type of sector or asset class. And that's exactly what the S&P 500 does. And we've certainly seen a run up in, in the tech component in, in a big way, especially in the last five years. You know, just to throw some more statistics out on the table, the the composition really sort of bottomed out in terms of that uh, top or, or you know top weightedness. Um, you know, in the 2013 to 2017 range, it was it was down in and around only 16 to 18 percent was concentrated in the top 10, and it, and as tech has made its massive movement up in the last you know five or six years specifically, that's really what's resulted in the overweight. And, and something a little bit under the hood there that, that comes to bear is it also creates a bit of a dichotomy in, in terms of the valuation. Uh, so if you look at the top 10 components of the S&P right now, you know, you've got a, a, a you know, a simple price to earnings ratio of, of you know, bumping up against 25%, 24.7%. That's based on some recent JP Morgan work um, and research that they've done where the remaining stocks obviously to get to our average are quite a bit below that and, and more in the, you know, 14.6, right around 15 uh, times price to earnings ratio. So it, it, it is very interesting. The other, the other thing that, you know, I want to bat around a little bit with you, Nate, and I saw this um, over the weekend on Twitter and, and Eric Belchunas made this point on, um, uh, he, he tweeted it and it was a point that Sam Rowe made actually. And, and I'm sure you saw this as, as you were in on the thread, but it's also interesting as we look under the hood of the specific companies that are comprising the top five and, you know, just the size and scale of the businesses that they're operating and, you know, no better example than than the largest S&P holding Apple. And, and so the business is so complex and it's almost a... Uh, um, a symphony of businesses in and of itself. And, and, and you look at like the services component of Apple, you know, almost 24% of revenue and their, their trailing 12 month revenue is, is bumping up against $400 million. It's crazy. And so you think of the iTunes revenue, the app store revenue, the, you know, the iBooks, Apple care, Apple pay, 
all of these things in and of themselves is a huge business. And, and, and there's so many other examples. We could take any of the top five and come up with a few of their businesses where we break them down and they are formidable in and of themselves. You know, a shining you know example of that, the AWS business within Amazon, you know, that gets a lot of attention from Wall Street and analysts, you know, based on the, the size and scale and speed at which it's growing. But it's just really interesting to think about how in, in 2022, it's it's a different market than it was in, you know, 20 years ago, you talk about the tech bubble or even the financial crisis going back, you know, 14 years. These are just different companies. And, and it's really interesting as we think about where investors are concerned, how they how they bring into their thought processes um, that these are actually, you know, uh, although they are one ticker, they are one company, they have many different types of businesses within that broader uh, ticker or company themselves. A any thoughts on that? Yeah, I saw that. So that was in response to a tweet I sent out regarding the, the concentration, our topic here today. Right. And yeah, I thought it was a good point by Eric Valchunas. I mean, just to crystallize what you're saying, I thought you described it really well. He was saying that these huge companies are like multiple companies in one. So they're like diversified plays in and of themselves with all the different acquisitions they've had over the years. And I think you know, Amazon, which you hit on, is probably as good of an example as any when you think about the retail business and the server business and, you know, the the other uh, channels they have. The the one hesitation I have there, and I, I think that's a valid point, and I agree with it. I mentioned before some advisors saying, hey, look, I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends. You know, the question is, is it different this time? Another sort of cliche we hear in the investment world. And is there anything different this time? Even if these companies are diversified, they do still comprise a very, uh, you know, healthy portion of the index. There, there is still that single company risk, even if the companies themselves may, again, be a bit more broad in what they do. I don't know that I have the answer to that. Everybody knows my crystal ball is broken. What I would say to all of this is whether or not, as an advisor, you believe you have the ability to to time anything here. So let's just let's just say you think tech is overvalued and tech is going to collapse, regardless of whether or not these individual companies are more diversified than they've been in the past. I'm saying put that aside and let's just say you think tech is too heavy right now. Do you have the ability to time that? Because people have been saying that the the S&P 500 is overconcentrated for how many years now? I, I mean, I feel like we've been hearing this for five, six, seven years. It, it, nothing's really happened here in terms of that that aspect of the index collapsing. So that, that, that'd be my concern with advisors who have really strong concentration concerns. I'm not saying that they're not valid. It's just, do you have the ability to intelligently act on those concerns? Well, no, absolutely. And, and, and back to where we jumped off into the conversation, you know, the community of advisors that, that Betify has a huge element of connectivity to is, is absolutely, you know, ringing that bell again, albeit it might've been a bit of an ever present risk that they see but it's one that has not been um, dissuaded or they have not been dissuaded in, in, in looking at their portfolio. And so then the question becomes, you know, how, how do they approach that? And, and I think that's where we're going to go in a little bit. But before we do, I, I think to your point about diversification and, and how um, the core of a lot of portfolios was actually buoyed, um, you know, by this run up in concentration because the performance has been so great in those constituents, it's, it's you know, there's other similar um, you know, counterbalances and, and, and take the energy sector, for example, where, you know, you go back to 2008, you know, right before or going into the financial crisis, energy would comprise, you know, 15 to 16% of the S&P, that number's down to five. And, and if we look at the trailing 12 month returns of the sectors, you know, the return on the energy sector is, you know, north of 50%. So, so just like investors got to participate in, in the increased concentration and in some of the performance over the last five, six years, if we shrink that time frame into more of the 12 months, they've actually lagged um, from exposure on the energy sector based on, on how the, the constituent weightings have changed over the last you know, five or six years. So that to, to your point, you uh, benefit in certain areas from sector outperformance, and then you're going to get you know pulled back in some areas where you're going to wish that you would have got more exposure. Yeah, I just think that's part of the deal. If you're going to you know buy and hold a uh, broad index, uh, but but look, let's not d dismiss the concerns that are out there. And you, you started heading down this path with with some of the, uh, the the what advisors are doing on the Vetify platform. So I, I guess I'll ask you the question. I mean, if advisors are concerned about this and they 
you know, may consider doing something differently in their portfolio. Maybe they're looking for alternatives to the S&P 500. Um, I'm curious to see what data you have around this. Like, are, are you seeing an uptick in interest around things like equal weighted ETFs or other alternatively weighted strategies? Are you seeing advisors behave differently on the platform? Yeah, the short answer is yes, Nate. And so a couple of the areas that that I grab some data in regards to this, that, you know, the question, sort of the so what question, if, if you have this concern, how are you addressing it? And and so two areas that you you alluded to, um, equal weighting strategies, you know, so so strategies like RSP or RSPE, or we didn't talk much about the NASDAQ, but, you know, we talked, we kind of focused at the front end there about the S&P 500, but it's a similar um, if not even more interesting phenomenon, as you look at the, 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 the constituents and the top heaviness of the NASDAQ 100. So I also looked at some of the strategies that equal weight the NASDAQ 100. Um, and, and the short answer is we've seen a significant uptick in, in the equal weighting strategies. And then the other area that, um, and, and we can get into some of that data very specifically, but the other area that I looked at high level, and maybe you have some thoughts before we dive into the specifics of the data, are the low volatility strategies. So those are two different ways to approach. If you're worried about the core of your portfolio, you're worried about the concentration risk, you know, you've historically owned SPY, IVV, VOO to, to get that exposure. How do you approach it? And, and so um, happy to dive into that now, if, if that's where you want. Yeah, to actually, I'd love to get into some of the uh, equal weighted ETF data. And and by the way, I did pull a stat down or a couple stats down regarding the NASDAQ top uh, top heaviness. So if you look at the Qs, the NASDAQ 100 ETF, the top five holdings in that ETF currently make up about 43%. The top mm-hmm. 10 holdings make up about 54%. And then, of course, tech is going to be big here, as you would expect, over 50%. Uh, overall. But uh, Tom, I'd love to hear what you found just on the equal weighted ETF side, and then we can get into the low vol. Yeah. And so it was, it was a, um, the, the pattern was persistent, but I'll, I'll call out a, a specific piece of data as it relates, relates to QQQE, which is the direction NASDAQ 100 equal weight index strategy. Um, so one of the ways that we can look at, and I'll take a quick aside here, Nate, to talk about one of the ways that we are now analyzing some of the engagement data. And just as a quick refresher, what we're doing on the Vetify platform is measuring engagement at the ticker level by different types of investors. So advisors, you know, broadly, and you can even break that down into different types of advisors, individual investors, and then institutional investors. So right now we're looking at across the board, the blended average of how this is uh, this engagement data is changing. And one of the ways that we can look at that is, is I looked at the direction suite as a whole. And then if you looked at the constituents within all of the different products that direction has, how much of the attention is QQQE specifically garnering relative to the, the whole? And, and so what's happened and, you know, going back to December, it was kind of bumping along the bottom. It, it wasn't getting a lot of attention. But in July and August, the amount of relative intention 3X'd. So it went up 300%. Um, and so that's that's really, really interesting in terms of, of that. That was the biggest mover. But we saw similar patterns, um, you know, especially on, on the NASDAQ weighted elements. So there's also the First Trust product, QQEW, which is the First Trust NASDAQ 100 equal weight index product. Um, and, and similar across uh, some of the S&P equal weight strategies. So RSP and RSPE specifically, RSP being the largest, which is the Invesco uh, S&P 500 equal weight strategy. And so we've, we're definitely seeing that as an area that uh, investors and advisors are turning, Nate, as they think about how to address this problem. And, you know, it's really hard to know, are they taking an allocation to something like an SPY and, and reducing it by a little bit, or are they taking, um, you know, a, as a complete um, swap, uh, you know, taking that position and, and get, you know, using one of these equal weight strategies, probably a combination of them, but we're certainly seeing that engagement go up and to the right as it relates to these strategies. Interesting. Now, and, you know, I, over the weekend, I was looking just at some of the different products in the space and you, you hit on some of the big ones there. I mean, obviously the, 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 the biggest players, the Invesco S&P 500 equal weight ETF ticker RSP, you mentioned there is that ESG version RSPE. 
But I was looking e- even down the, uh, the, the the leaderboard a little bit on some of these ETFs. I mean, Goldman Sachs has a product, an equal weight U.S. large cap equity ETF, ticker GSEW. Uh, Alps has an interesting product where it's an equal sector weight ETF. So ticker EQL. Uh, there's an Invesco Russell 1000 equal weight ETF, ticker EQAL, uh, another good ticker there. Uh, and then one that I thought was uh, interesting that I, I I have to mention, just because I've covered this ETF over the years, the Aero Reverse Cap 500 ETF. Uh, the ticker is YPS, so obviously the uh, the inverse of SPY, but that is uh, inverse weighting, uh, uh, inverse weighted market cap of the S&P 500. So uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if investors start taking a harder look at some of these. And, you know, from my end, obviously, I didn't have the Vetify data that you have, Tom, but I just went and looked at flows and I, I pulled a, a good stat for you. So RSP, the, the Invesco S&P 500 equal weight ETF is now actually Invesco's top ETF year to date in terms of inflows. Even though you look at a product like QQQ, that has 170 billion in assets. RSP only has 31 billion, but RSP has taken in over 3 billion of inflows. So there's clearly been a shift in investor preference here. And I also think it's noteworthy that uh, you know RSP has 31 billion. I think that might surprise some people for a product that simply equal weights the S&P 500 and, and for a 20 basis point fee too. But uh, you know, I think they were the first mover in this category. I think pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it's funny, Nate. So in, in a similar vein, I went down a, a path of the research path and rolling around in, in some data. And I think you're highlighting something that is, is you know, kind of um, hiding in plain sight in the ETF market. You talk about the first mover advantage. And, and I was looking at, I mentioned, you know, as we're doing the S&P analysis and, and thinking about the the nearly or, or slightly over trillion dollars that reside in three products, the State Street product, SPY, the iShares product, IVB, and the Vanguard product, VOO, which which get you know non equal uh, equal weighted strategy, but it's just pure S and P five hundred exposure. And, and to the point of the first mover, it's it's actually amazing as I looked at those and dusted off the numbers in terms of uh, not so much the assets, you know, SPY a little over four hundred billion dollars, IVB a little over three hundred billion, VOO, you know. 280s or so. But as you talk about how assets beget assets um, with first movers, there is a there is a net, natural network effect where brand um, liquidity profile, investor preference, it, it tends to go to some of those first movers. And, and if you deconstruct the revenue of SPY, for example, it, it's, you know, almost $400 million annually versus IVB, which is more like 125. So although the assets are a little bit, um, not, not quite that uh, stark of a contrast, that SPY going back to 1993, and it's, and it, it's gonna have its 30th birthday next year, which is pretty cool, um, is just an absolute behemoth and kind of 800 pound gorilla in that space. And in, in a similar vein, and although on a slightly smaller scale, we're seeing that in RSP. And we see that across other strategies where uh, the first mover certainly is important in the market. Yeah, no question. I mean, that's what jumped off the page to me. Again, and looking at the assets in RSP, that $31 billion and again, a 20 basis point fee, this ETF is just simply you know doing a 0.2% weight to every holding. That's it. So uh, you're right. I mean, clearly there are benefits to the uh, first mover. Finding innovative strategies for you and your clients is what we do at Pacer ETFs. One of our newest ETFs, ticker ODDS, is the only ETF that gives investors exposure to online gambling, esports, and video game development. If you're interested in the future of digital entertainment, odds may be the three-legged strategy for you. Visit PacerETFs.com odds for more information. Um, okay, let's let's jump now to the low-vol ETFs because I do think if advisors are looking to maintain exposure to broad U.S. stocks, but maybe they do have some concerns, even if it's not specifically about concentration. It, it might just be about the overall market environment. One area they can look is to something like uh, SPLV, the Invesco S&P 500 Low Vol ETF, <clears throat> excuse me, which has worked pretty well this year, only down 7%. Or they might look to USMV, the iShares Minimum Volatility ETF. That's down 11%. And just as a comparison, S&P 500 is down about 17%. But it's interesting because as I thought about the low and minvol products, if you remember back to the COVID crash in March of 2020, these products had a 
tough time. I mean, they were down every bit as much as the S&P 500, but they are working a lot better this year. So I'm curious, are you seeing that translate into interest on the Vetify uh, platform? Yeah. So, so short answer is we are, Nate. And my, my colleague and fellow Vetify voice, Todd Rosenbluth, uh, wrote a recent piece on this and kind of went a little bit deeper um, in the comparison between SPLV, USMV, and, and SPY, which I think was really interesting. And that, that pushed me to look at this data. And so I'll use SPLV where from the, the June to August comparison in terms of that relative number that I talked about, it, it's up about 100%. So, so some significant interest, especially as we kind of went into the teeth of that volatility and, and, you know, we put in that June bottom, which we'll see if that holds, but there's been significant interest in, in SPLV, a similar, but not quite as significant increase in USMV, which also kind of led me down the path. And, and Todd did a really good job of, of deconstructing, you know, these products. It, what was really interesting and jumped off the page to me was how how they take a different approach um, to reduce volatility as it relates to sort of this core exposure. So, you know, USMV, you know, 176 holdings, SPLV, which is really just the 100 lowest volatility S&P 500 stock. So it's only got 100 holdings. But as you look into their sector exposures, some really stark differences there. And, and you know, we, we started the show by talking about the overweighting and sort of that uh, you know, broader tech space. And, and that's one of the things that SPLV only has a 3% exposure to information technology, whereas USMV has a 23% exposure. So one of those examples where, you know, the names actually sound quite similar, but as you pop open the hood, uh, the way in which they achieve, achieve the objective is quite different. Um, and, and so both, both products have, you know, great merits of, of how they're built and constructed and certainly have, um, you know, ways in which they should be used within different portfolios, but just that, that level of understanding and the education as we get into these strategies, which are a little bit more complex, um, certainly requires advisors, investors to do their homework and research and, and, and really understand how the objective is being achieved and, and why in certain market environments, it might be different than what they're, what they're looking to get. No, that's a great uh, example. I think that SPLV and USMV, those are two ETFs that a lot of advisors think do the exact same thing. I think you highlighted well, they don't. Those are two that you definitely want to look under the hood on and understand how they work. One's just taking the 100 least volatile stocks in the S&P 500. That's SPLV. The other one is there's some sector constraints there. It's a minimum volatility approach to look for the portfolio that's going to have the, the, min, the, you know, the lowest volatility overall as a portfolio, not just taking the, the lowest volatility stocks. But um, in terms of the Vetify platform interest, so you, you have seen an uptick there on the low vol? Yeah, yeah. So so SPLV was the one that had, uh, you know, more than 100% increase as we as we compared August to June. Um, and, and so that's where we're starting to see that. USMV was more like a 50% increase, you know, just over that short period of time. But uh, that's uh, emblematic of, of one of the ways in which the advisor community is thinking about and doing research on solving the, the problem that we sort of highlighted. They highlighted to us, in fact, um, as it relates to the concern about the concentration. So uh, in addition to, uh, you know, some of the equal weight strategies where we're seeing an increased engagement, we're also seeing similar increased engagement, albeit not quite to the, the degree on, on the equal weight side, but with the low volatility products. Yeah. And of course, performance always helps here, right? I, I mentioned the yeah. performance of SPLV and USMV. We didn't mention the performance of RSP, which I should have noted is is down 13% year to date, again, versus 17 for the S&P 500. But uh, I, I was looking last week, so S&P Dow Jones indices, they put out a great monthly report on their S&P 500 factor indices. And this year, out of 17 indices, the S&P 500 low vol high dividend index is the top performing, and then the S&P 500 low vol index is the fourth best. So that shows you, you know, the performance there. And there is an ETF, by the way, which covers the S&P 500 low vol high dividend index. That's a SPHD. And if you pull the performance on that, that's only down about 1%. So again, I think it fits with a theme we see often where, uh, you know, advisors are going to pay attention to performance in these different categories. I think that'll translate into uh, to the interest on the Vetify platform. Um, Tom, just a couple of minutes left. I, I want to quickly go to the other end of the spectrum. So, you know, we were talking low volatility ETFs. 
Let's talk long volatility ETFs. I'll be joined here shortly by Convexity Shares' uh, Tom Jart. And you think about products like uh, VIXY VIXI, the ProShares VIX Short-Term Futures ETF, or VXX, the uh, iPath S&P 500 VIX Short-Term Futures ETN. Are you seeing advisors starting to research these now? Because I know some advisors will uh, use these tactically as a hedge. And of course, we have seen an uptick in volatility this year. Any quick thoughts on that space? Yeah, quick thoughts there, Nate, and, and certainly defer to Tom, the expert in, in the you know underlying uh, mechanics of these products. They, they, I just you know want to really highlight the the different layers of complexity here. Like as we transition from summer to fall, these are like the double black diamond type products from using a skiing reference, a downhill skiing reference. There's a lot going on underneath the hood, especially as you get into adding uh, some of the leverage components. And so, you know, certainly one of those types of, of uh, complex products that require a deep dive and, and a deep understanding. And, and ultimately there, uh, what we've seen is that during periods of spikes, uh, spikes or, or downdrafts, you know, big changes, in overlying market volatility, we do see, and just recently saw a similar trend where like Bixie, for example, you know, from, from the June to August period had, had a, a 120% increase in advisor engagement. And so that's really interesting. And, and there's some new, you know, obviously some new products that came out just in August and then some going back to, to April of this year. Um, I'm sure that you guys will get into the history of the, those products. You know, some of the construction elements are, are different and need to be well understood. But, you know, I think the, the one thing I just want to really emphasize is, is understanding um, what these products will do within certain market environments for anyone holding them, be them advisors, investors, or other, um, you know, is just incredibly important. And we look for, uh, you know, there, there's some great information on the Vetify platform and other sources, but yeah, we are, we are seeing a spike in these. Some of the newer products, like specifically the Convexity Shares products, you know, having just launched on the 15th of August, little early to tell, you know, they're still really small, kind of sitting on, on the seed of the fund there. Um, you know, some of the things going back, you know, SVIX or, or, or UVIX, uh, you know, those are the ones that launched back in April, still relatively small funds, but starting to see an uptick in engagement. So an interesting space where, um, you know, last point I'll make, Nate, is that uh, are these products for everyone in every portfolio? Ab- absolutely not. Do they serve a purpose, though? Absolutely. And, and I love to see the continued innovation broadly in the space. And this is just another example of where the ETF industry is taking um, investor need and thinking about, you know, building new innovative ways of achieving different objectives. And, you know, I, I, I'm just thrilled to see that type of uh yeah, advancement in the industry overall and look forward to hearing what, what Tom has to say about it. Well, Tom, very well said all the way around. And, you know, I completely agree on the educational side of things, especially with products like this. So uh, very wise words. Uh, always enjoy visiting. Great stuff this week. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. Have a great day. That was Tom Hendrickson, Chief Product and Innovation Officer at Vetify. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com slash ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETFs funds. My other guest this week is Tom Jart, Vice President of Proprietary Product Development at Myax, who in mid-August, they launched two ETFs, the Convexity Shares One-Time Spikes Futures ETF, ticker SPKX, and the Convexity Shares Daily 1.5 Times Spikes Futures ETF, ticker SPKY. These both uh, obviously provide long volatility exposure, and Tom is now on the line with me. Tom, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Okay, so as, so as I understand it, uh, these products are a result of a partnership between MyX and T3 Index. And I'm guessing these names aren't necessarily familiar to some of our listeners. So I thought to start, just give us a little background here on MyX and T3 and why you decided to get involved with ETFs. I will 
certainly do so. Uh, yeah, one thing I just want to say, you know, before I start to talk is I, I need to just put out a little disclaimer there um, that uh, any views I express today, which I'm not planning on giving a lot of views, it's more informational, um, as, you know, as I am an officer of the Miami International Holdings, I do not represent or reflect the views of anyone else, including Convexity Shares. And please note that Miami International Holdings owns Myax Futures, which is the majority owner of Convexity Shares. Uh, so that being said, um, you know, Miami International Holdings is a, is a private company um, that wholly uh, owns and operates uh, the Miami International Securities Exchange, known as MIAX. And MIAX has um, the MIAX Options Exchange, MIAX Emerald Options Exchange, MIAX Pearl Equities and Options. Um, in 2020, MIAX acquired the uh, MIA, I'm sorry, Miami National Holdings acquired the uh, Minneapolis Green Exchange, known as MGEX, and as well as the uh, Bermuda Stock Exchange. Um, uh, so there's uh, you know, several strategic partnerships as well within the holding company. And one of those, as you mentioned, is uh, T3 Index. And T3 Index, uh, the founder there is uh, Simon Ho. Uh, he's based out of Sydney, Australia. Uh, he created the Spikes Volatility Index, um, you know, some, some many, many uh, years back. Um, and in 2019, February, we you know, launched options on, um, on the index. And in 2020, December, uh, we uh, launched the futures on, MG, uh, on MGEX. And, um, you know, and now we're happy to say, yes, the Convexity Shares ETFs um, have been launched. Um, your previous guest mentioned, I think, the 15th. Today was actually the 16th. They went live. We're trading. They seeded on the 15th. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, we're very excited about it. Uh, and, yes, uh, SPKX one times and one uh, SPKY is the one and a half times uh, the underlying index. And Tom, just briefly, tell us a little bit about your background. So I understand you have some 25 years of experience in equity derivatives, market making, and, and, and trading, among other things. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background. Yeah, sure, sure. I've been, you know, I've been around for some time. Um, you know, early, my early days, I was down on the, uh, the CBOE trading floor. Uh, I traded SPX index options, um, part of an index trade. You know, initially, I started out by myself. Um, you know, back with some capital, then uh, we started up a, uh, you know, a, a trading group, an index uh, called Letgo Index Arbitrage. Uh, in 2002, our firm Letgo was uh, purchased by uh, Toronto Dominion, TD Bank. Um, and at that time, I, um, I moved over to, uh, to New York to work at um, some of the different, uh, you know, Wall Street uh, bank you know, trading desks. And um, always been involved in equity volatility trading, index options, you know, VIX, you know, the whole complex, long-dated options. Uh, late exotics, variant swaps, um, and you know, dealing with a lot of institutional client base, as well as um, you know some of the more high net worth retail, and uh, you know the retail the retail exposure I had back then was from the you know the, the high net worth retail um, you know coming in and trading structured notes with the trading desk and things like that. So yeah, so then uh, the last two years I've been working with uh, with Myax. I kind of uh, hung up the trading jacket per se, but. Um, the uh, you know working on with the exchange and helping with you know proprietary product development. Uh, the main interest is the spikes volatility index, and obviously that's an area where I I can contribute the most because that's my you know that's my you know prior expertise. Um, so yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue here. Let's get into these ETFs. I'm sure that'll then generate some additional questions uh, on my side. And uh, again, first up is the Convexity Shares One Time Spikes Futures ETF ticker SPKX. Just walk us through the, the basic construction here. What exactly does this ETF hold, and, and what is this designed to do? Yeah, so uh, what this ETF does, so, so both ETFs, and I can kind of talk to them both at the same time, because you know, they both are, are, are built on the, um, the uh, SPKF, which is the, uh, which is the, the, the um, excuse me, it's the uh, uh, Spikes Futures Short-Term Index. And actually, the, the true name is the T3 Spike Front 2 Futures Index. Uh, the symbol for this is SPKF. Um, now, what happens is, and um, I don't know if you want me to go back into the, the indexes itself a little bit. Yeah, please. Uh, on spikes. Okay, yeah, let me, if I could back up, because I, I really think it builds the base for the, uh, for the whole, you know, whole conversation. And, and one of the exciting parts about these ETFs uh, being part of being launched is it kind of, um, and eventually when hopefully options will be launched on them, it will uh, complete kind of what the ecosystem is on the spikes volatility index, uh, you know, world. So, uh, very excited about that. But you know, so the index is 
Um, basically, you have the, the spikes volatility index, which is a measure of that 30-day expected volatility uh, of the S&P, uh, you know, top 500 stocks. And uh, but this one is it, it's based a little different than the, the competitor. It's built on the uh, the spider options. So it uses spider options. So you know, a lot of people are trading spies, uh, spider options, uh, spy ETF. Uh, this one uses those options as an input to calculate the index. So, and that's, you know, that, that's been a real, um, you know, kind of, kind of a big differentiator from some of the other products. They're all based on, you know, S&P 500 index, uh, SPX. This is based on SPY options. Um, so, you know, on, and, and based on that index, there has been a, you know, a launch of uh, futures uh, back in 2020, as I mentioned. Um, so now, if we if we roll, and I'll go back to the indexes a little more. If we want, we can go more detail on those. But uh, I want to answer your question first. Uh, the so the SPKX index um, ETF is based on that SPKF index. That's the benchmark. Uh, so that index, what it does is it holds the um, the you know on on, on basically on um, on a spike futures expiry date, it would hold 100% of its position in the next month um, spike futures. Um, and then it rolls on a formula basis, linearly, per trading day. Every day, you know, the future rolls from the front month future to the second month future. Um, every day until, like I said, the, the night before expiry, it's all into that next contract. Um, so it's a, you know, it's kind of a, you know, perpetually going to be doing the same mechanism. And the amount, the volume that trades based on that um, has to do with uh, creation redemptions. Um, you know, basically, if there's, you know, if there's, if there's more, more, um, more ETF created, then there's more volume to be traded from one day to the next. But the, but the formula is the same. It's always going to be that same uh, moving. Um, now, with the, the, uh, the SPKY, that is a one and a half times. Um, so it tries. It, it's it's going to mimic uh, one and a half times the performance of that benchmark. You know, subject to any kind of you know um, you know hedging or uh, expenses and things like that. But but in, in general, uh, that has that same rolling mechanism because it's tracking that index. That index is what we're tracking. Uh, so um, but you know because of that uh, that extra half a point of leverage. The, the one and a half times, uh, it will hold you know more more pro, more uh, features in the in the in the uh, in the fund in the ETF itself, and you know it's it's really important to note too that these are ETFs. These are not exchange traded notes. Um, there's been some recent um, you know kind of chatter about uh, you know another product that's out there that halted halted creations and it's trading at a big premium and causing all kinds of confusion. Um, I get a lot of phone calls about that, and uh, it's it, th- these are ETFs. These will uh, you know, unlimited creation redemption ability. Um, we have, you know, really, you know, good quality market maker in there, uh, as well as our sub-advisor. And the, um, you know, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll pause there and let you jump in. Hopefully I, I was able to uh, explain that. Yeah, no, I, I, that's helpful. So let, let me ask you this. If we were just to boil this down, um, yep. how would you describe the difference between the spikes volatility index and then I'll say the VIX, which is something that I think a lot of people have at least heard of, right? Even if they don't fully understand the back-end calculation, I think that's the one that's out in the media. So how should people think about those two? What what, what, what do the differences boil down to? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so well, there's some similarities and some differences. Uh, the similarities are they're both based, both indices are based on the, uh, you know, that variance swap replication methodology. Uh, both are, you know, 30-day volatility indexes, uh, you, know, you know, that are measuring the expected 30-day volatility um, some of the differences, uh, and not getting too deep in the weeds, um, you know, uh, the spikes volatility index uses a, what's called a proprietary price dragging methodology, um, where on the when it's you know taking the inputs of the spy option prices, uh, whereas the the VIX is always using the midpoint of those SPX options. Uh, the VIX SPX options trade on one exchange only. Uh, well, uh, within one exchange, within the, the uh, CBOE community, um, and the uh, you know, spikes uses spy options, and spy options is trade on every exchange. So there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot of price input information uh, that we you know that's captured. Um, spikes the, the the spikes index uses the front two monthly expiries with two days you know with two days remaining up to up to two days remaining. 
um, for its calculation, whereas the VIX uh, uses that um, kind of the monthlies and the weekly options between the 23-day and 37-day expiries. Um, the spikes volatility index, you know, one of the things we really like about it is, uh, is, you know, for people that are using it as an indicator for any of their, you know, trading or decisions, uh, we disseminate it every 100 milliseconds. Uh, so that's, you know, pretty much, you know, <laughs> continuous um, versus, uh, the, you know, VIX index is published every 15 seconds. Um, one of the differences, too, again, I don't want to get too complex here uh, on this call. We could be here for hours, but uh, the, the truncation used in the strike methodology uh, for both settlement and for the index calculation. Uh, uh, Spikes uses a, uh, they both reference the nickel option as where they're going to cut off the tails um, for that calculation of the variance swap methodology. But because spiders, spider options, are one-tenth the size of SPX, it means that that five-cent option in spiders is a much higher strike on the put side and a lower strike on the call side. So it's a, you can think of it as a tighter band um, of of the uh, the range of strikes that are used in that uh, final determination of the calculation, as well as the you know daily you know published you know intraday VIX, uh, spikes index calculation versus the VIX. Um, yeah, so that's you know that's kind of the uh, the you know some of the differences on the index level and on the on the futures level. Just uh, just one thing now on the futures because um, that's what the ETFs are holding. Um, they are very similar characteristics, same, same settlement um, morning, uh, that 30 days prior to the, um, you know, the next monthly expiry. Uh, there's a morning settlement process, an auction process, uh, goes through MIACS membership. And, um, you know, the, the spike futures and the symbols SPK, uh, those are offered by MJEX, you know, the Minneapolis Grain Exchange, and they but they're traded and accessed through the CME Globex platform to make things even more confusing. <laughs> a lot of information, but, but yeah. And then, um, uh, and they're also cleared, uh, they're clearing through MJEX clearing, whereas VIX features trade through the CFE and they clear OCC. So that's a, a few, of the, few of the big differences there. No, that was a great checklist. A lot, well, lot to digest. But yeah, <laughs> well, no, but you know, I think it highlights it. Look, these products are more complex, and, and I like getting into this level of detail because I think it helps right. on the educational right. side. Uh, so, no, Absolutely. I thought that was a great checklist. Let me ask you this. On the, uh, on the futures, how big of a factor is Contango here, right, this potential for negative roll yield? I would say especially when volatility is expected to increase in the future. In my understanding, you look at, you know, most vol markets, they do tend to be in contango, right, where longer maturities have higher prices than, than shorter uh, maturities. How, how big of a factor is that within the ETF? Yep. Um, well, because of the, the general nature of these, um, these ETFs, you know, contango and backwardation are definitely, you know, definitely factors into it. So um, with the daily, you know, as you mentioned, contango, the, the further dated months, are, are higher and, you know, more expensive in a way. Um, I, I hate looking at volatility as a, as a cost, but it is a cost. Uh, but, yeah, so if, if, the, if you're in contango and we're rolling, you're, so you're constantly, every day you're selling that front month future and buying that second month future, you are inherently, you know, taking a small, small loss. Um, so you're, you're, you're paying up to, to roll out your position. So in theory, that's, you know, that puts kind of a negative uh, drag on, on the um, on the ETFs, and that's you know that's that's you know not not by design, but it's by default of design. It's you know it's um, uh, the so when, when you're rolling on a daily basis like that, the term structure of volatility is a, is a big you know is a big factor. Um, so and then in backwardation, when the term structure is um, the front month is higher than the back months, you're selling out you know you're selling out your short-dated future at a higher price than the next future you're buying, so you're going to be, you know, that's going to be beneficial to this ETF, these, both these ETFs that we have. And, um, you know, so that, that's definitely an important factor to consider when you're, you know, evaluating these, you know, these ETFs and others. And the, 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 the irony of the whole thing is that when vol is low and you think you want to buy it, you know, you're looking at a contango situation where if you buy and hold it, you're going to be, you know, and, and nothing happens, let's say, you know, markets kind of stay the same or that, that you're going to experience what we call that roll down. Um, that's a roll down mechanism that the industry kind of, um, you know, there's a lot of strategies around the roll down. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so these uh, and all all the most of the volatility based ETFs um, are going to experience that same thing. And uh, so, but yeah, the irony is that when vols low, you have this contangled situation. So you're going to be you know to own it. You know, you might have that cost of that roll down. And then in a backwardation situation, vols are higher. You probably don't want to be buying them. <laughs> But now you're, you know, now you're, you'd be, um, you would be, um, you know, getting a gain from the backwardation because you're, you know, that, that rolling of the futures. So yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of like a, either an extra gain for the, for the, uh, in high, you know, in high vol environments, you're going to get back a little bit from that backwardation, and in low vol environments, if you're a long holder, you're going to be experiencing a little bit of a drag. Uh, yeah, and, and as you mentioned, we call that the roll down, the roll yield. Um, you know, there's actually, you know, me, you know, a lot of a lot of people measure that and focus on that. There's strategies built around it. The, you know, the shape of the term structure. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll, no, that, that's great. So let, let me ask you this. I mean, given that, and then, you know, you look at the the 1.5 times leverage product, which that obviously has a daily reset. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm just curious, how do you see these ETFs being used? Like, what are some potential portfolio applications here? Is it is yeah. it almost all tactical? You know, I caught the uh, the tail end of uh, you know, the, your last guest, Tom, and uh, you know he he mentioned something about, um, or maybe it was yourself about the tactical nature. And yeah, so so well, first and foremost, I would say you know is anybody that wants to start trading any of these volatility ETFs, as your previous guest mentioned, they're not meant for everybody. Uh, they do they do require a little bit more you know education and understanding. Um, I would recommend you know completely speaking to your advisor first. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you know, typically, you know, we see volatility moving, you know, inversely to equity market prices, uh, being that these are both long exposure ETFs. Um, you know, like I would say, definitely more tactical. Um, you know, perhaps, like, like I, I, I can't really get into too many different, you know, scenarios, but one, you know, one basic, you know, think about, like, um, we had uh, Jerome Powell's, uh, you know, Jackson Hole speech, you know, a week and a half ago. And prior to that, you know, vols were kind of, you know, kind of in that range or whatever. And, um, you know, for someone that looks like an attackable hedge, you know, you could, going into events like that, if volatility is, you know, fairly priced or reasonably priced, uh, you know, based on however you measure that, um, you know, one could see themselves, uh, you know, potentially getting long in, you know, in a volatility product, whether it's, you know, ETFs, spikes futures, like option call options. Um, and when you get that move like that, you know, the market sold, equity market sold off quite a bit and you had volatility spike up, um, you know, that, that's going to help your portfolio. But again, tactical, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that, you know, frown on the, uh, you know, kind of holding these types of things for, for long periods of time. But yeah, so that's, that's where I'll leave that. But, um, yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of other different strategies that, you know, people do, um, uh, you know, trade around them, and you know, I mean, you can. I'm sure there's um, a lot of things out there that you know you can talk to your advisor about, and maybe get get access to some of those different strategies. No, well said. And again, I'll come back to to a point you made. I mean, you just really have to understand how these products work. I do think it comes down to education. There's no question; these are sharper tools for investors, and particularly when you start adding that leverage on on SBKY, you just have to be aware of that daily reset and. And how these products uh, will will operate yep. if you're holding them for longer than a, a day period. But uh, Tom, congratulations on the launch of these ETFs. Certainly wish you the best of luck. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you very much. Yes, and I, I just want, if I have one second, I would like to Please. point out that um, you know we have a Convexity Shares put out a new website upon the launch called ConvexityShares.com. Uh, there's a lot of information on there. Uh, we're putting out educational content. Um, and we do have, you know, on myaxoptions.com, uh, there's also a YouTube channel with a link there for some educational information. Uh, you know, we've got some webinars. We've got one coming up with Interactive Brokers at the end, in, in a month um, on the 21st of September. Uh, so, yeah, just, you know, you know just, you know, uh, I guess poke around on the website and you'll find a lot more information. And uh, anybody can reach out to, to me or the exchange and if, uh, or, you know, through the Convexity Shares website. There's, you know, contact information there. And uh, thank you very much for having me on today. Yeah, really thank, thank you, Tom. That thank, was thank you. that was Tom Jark, Vice President of Proprietary Product Development at Myax. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com slash sustainable. 
Next week, I have a tremendous guest for you. I'll be joined by Mike Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify ETFs. We're going to talk markets, the impact of passive investing, and also spotlight the Simplify Macro Strategy ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.